Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. Welcome to the second installment of my chat with Mr. David Scharf, because we had so much fun talking about all things Buddhism. Last time we decided to expand on the conversation and initially my intention was to speak with him more about the teachings of and his experience with his Tibetan teacher Chagdod Tolka Rinpoche and of course as what normally happens with these conversations from here is that we ended up talking about something related but slightly different. So this time we took kind of a deep dive on Vajrayana Buddhism and also we speak on other faith traditions and the commonalities therein. This is a favorite topic of mine, the, com the commonalities between especially the mystical traditions of faiths around the world. So I hope you will enjoy this episode. I think we're going to have to have him back again to actually talk about the aforementioned teachings of Chagda Tolku Rinpoche. And, uh, but anyway, we had a really good time on this talk. We enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Here's me and David. So welcome back, Mr. David Scharf. I'm just so glad that you wanted to do a part duh <laughs> to our episode. And um, so when we left off, you had met Shagdud Tolku Rinpoche. Got it. And you had, I believe it was the first empowerment. Right. And can can you explain a little bit for, for anyone who may not know, what, what exactly is an empowerment? So um, sometimes it's translated as initiation. And so people might be more familiar with that as a phrase, the actual word in uh, Tibetan, wang, means power. So um, in Sanskrit, abhisheka is the word, and that means initiation. But in Tibetan, it means power. Um, and so the, the goal is to empower a person to be able to engage in certain practices of Vajrayana. Now, um, the context is that there are different stages of the path that are laid out over the course of Buddha's teachings. And the first stage is to be able to um, remove oneself from the suffering of attachment to the world. That all of the, the poisons of the mind arise because of desire, attachment, aversion, um, it, due to the things that one has connection with in the world. So you become a monk or a nun, you remove yourself from connection to the world, you retreat from everything that could cause the poisons of the mind to arise and dominate your experience. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, the common path, um, not like common, like, oh, you're a commoner, but common meaning that's at the base of the teachings of the Buddha is mm -hmm. there's suffering in the world. The suffering comes from attachment to oneself. There is freedom from suffering too. And that comes from the Eightfold Noble Path, which removes you from attachment to the world. So those are the four noble truths of the Buddha. There is suffering. It comes from self-attachment, self-grasping. There's freedom from suffering. And you can. there's a path to that freedom. And that empowerment sort of lays the groundwork for you to then, to then walk this path. Well, so empowerment comes later. That uh, becoming a monk is mm -hmm. that first common path. Okay. So that is, that's ground one, you know, that's like learning your ABCs. Then the next level is called the Mahayana or the great path. So there's the common path and then there's the great or the vast path. And that's when you take the Bodhisattva vow, which means you have acknowledged 
that you're going to come back over and over and over again in reincarnation into this world over and over and over again to free people from suffering. So that's this, uh, it's no longer about me freeing myself from suffering by becoming a monk. It's about me going out, alleged me, it's illusory, but about me going out into the world and engaging in activities that free others from suffering. And so that greater path, vast path, has to do with this multi-lifetime vow, the Bodhisattva vow. Talk you're about a commitment. Saying, yeah, you're not just saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help people out. Uh, you're not saying I'm going to help people out this week. You're saying for as many lifetimes as I have, I'm going to come back until suffering is alleviated. And we all know that doesn't happen in the mm -hmm. relative world. So that's, mm -hmm. that's the beginning of Mahayana. Mm -hmm. And the path in that is this, there's the six perfections, they call them. I'm not going to rattle them off because I'm not going to test my memory, but it's like generosity, patience, mm -hmm. diligence, concentration. You know, these are these perfections that you engage in in order to be um, an active bodhisattva. Mm -hmm. One bodhisattva kind of means one who's on the way to Buddhahood, a, a warrior of enlightenment, a being towards Buddhahood. Mm -hmm. So that's that second uh, level. Then within that, we get to Vajrayana, and that's the diamond path. Diamond so path. The difference with, yes, with Vajrayana is, that there's a number of differences, but they say the difference is the speed with which one traverses the paths. So if you're a bodhisattva, you've said, I'm going to do this for the rest of my lifetimes. They say it's still going to take you three incalculable eons to generate enough wisdom and compassion to then become a Buddha. Mm. With Vajrayana, it's the fast path. And so you use these skillful methods of visualization, mantra recitation, meditation, and that is like a um, taking off from any ordinary path into, oh, if you do Vajrayana correctly, you can be a Buddha in seven lifetimes, you know, mm. or three lifetimes. Like, forget about incalculable eons. This skillful means of Vajrayana gets you there fast so that you can be of benefit faster. It's not like, oh, I won the race. It's not like it's I'm, not like it's advanced placement. No. So AP history or something. Yeah, you're not getting out of anything by getting done sooner. You're getting into more. So yeah. Mm -hmm. And so Vajrayana is when you start to need empowerment. Mm -hmm. um, because what you're doing is you're starting to visualize yourself as a Buddha. So it's a, uh, all of the other paths that I talked about are called causal paths, because you're doing something to create merit, to create the conditions so that you can eventually become a Buddha. That's causal. Vajrayana, you go right for the result. I am the Buddha. Mm -hmm. I'm going to visualize myself, convince myself, visualize myself as the Buddha or one kind of Buddha. You know, there's medicine Buddha or there's Tara or there's all of these different aspects or manifestations of enlightened awareness. So I'm going to meditate that I am that. And I'm going to convince myself that I am Tara, that I am medicine Buddha, that I am the Buddha Amitabha. I'm going to erase my image of myself as David. I'm going to create the image of myself as Amitabha Buddha or Tara, whatever the Buddha is, medicine Buddha. I'm going to create that out of that emptiness, the emptiness that I created from erasing David. It's a little bit like fake it till you make it. In a so fake way. it, so Buddhist fake it till you make it. Exactly. I wasn't going to say it, but yep, that's it. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm for. <laughs> yeah. And and then you're visualizing yourself. Basically, this is a <clears throat> it's a bold move, right? <laughs> to say I am the Buddha. Right. And then you you with that visualization, you repeat the mantra of that particular Buddha. Um, if it's Amitabha Buddha, it's Om Amidewahri. You know, if you're Tara, Om Tare Tu Tare Ture Soha. Um, the medicine Buddha is a little more complicated. Bikansa, Bikansa, Maha, Bikansa, Radza, Samagati, Soha. You know, and if you want to go all the way for the, um, the Vajra, the diamond being, Vajrasattva, the Buddha that purifies all negative karma of the past, which is Om Vajrasattva Samayamanu Palaya Vajrasattva Tenopa Tishtadita Mibwa Sutika Mibwa Subhaja Mibwa Anarakto Mibwa Sarasita Miprayatsa Sarukama Sutsa Metsitam Shiriam Kuru Hum Ha 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 Ho Bhagavan Saratatagata Benzama Mimunza Benzabawa Maha Samaya Sato Ah 
Wow. And if, and if that, if that doesn't work, nothing will. <laughs> That's right. So these empowerments that you learn, you have to learn that mantra. You visualize yourself as the Buddha in whatever form it takes, whatever color the Buddha is, red, blue, white, um, green, black, any of these colors, uh, you visualize yourself as that Buddha of that color, dressed as that Buddha is described, holding in their hand, whatever the hand implements you know, the Buddha is holding that represent their unique function in the world. Medicine Buddha heals, obviously, you know. So you're holding a blue lapis bowl if you're Medicine Buddha because the lapis color is meant to be healing. And mm -hmm. the skin of Medicine Buddha is lapis blue. So you hold this image as mm -hmm. yourself. You do the mantra. So you are visualizing the body of the Buddha and you are uttering the mantra, which is the speech of the Buddha. And then when you have been visualizing and, and reciting and visualizing and reciting, then you rest in stillness and quiet. And that meditation is the mind of the Buddha. Mm. So body, speech, and mind of the Buddha. And then you dissolve it. You're back to zero again. I was going to say also, um, there are helpful visual aids for such yadam practice, which are the tonkas. That's and, right. And um, anyone who has seen these beautiful... Uh, these beautiful uh, Tibetan art pieces that have representations of the Buddhas and they generally roll up so you can take them with you. But you, when you hang them, they hang down. And uh, and I have, as as I've told you before, I have the Sittatara, the white Tara mm -hmm. over mm -hmm. me here. And um, that that is so helpful because it, 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 it allows you to, especially the, the Tibetan style, style of of representation helps you to uh emb embody that i would think yeah it's it's the, uh, an important point that you're bringing up which is that they're not pretty paintings they are pretty paintings yes. they're beautiful um but the the point is not to have a pretty painting on the wall and a lot right. of people have them up and it's very decorative you know mm -hmm. it's very wonderful it's it's kind of enchanting even if you mm -hmm. don't know anything about it it's like wow that's beautiful where'd you get mm -hmm. one of those i want to get one for my wall you know it's so it can be very decorative but if you say it's you know it's kind of like uh, there's a there's a, a, a scene in the movie auntie mame where this intended of her nephew comes to visit and she says oh you have books i love books they're so decorative don't you think so right. that's kind of like <laughs> if you have a tonka on your wall and you're thinking of it as being decorative it's like that right <laughs> it's that far exactly. off the mark it's not why you have it it's meant to be a tool exactly that, that guides your meditation guides your visualization and it's in a way meant to be a tool that you outgrow uh, even though you won't take it off the wall, it's meant to be a tool that once you have learned all of those elements and details, implements and garbs and colors and rays of light and all of that, once you have really learned that and committed it to memory, and not just committed what it looks like to memory, but every single meaning of mm -hmm. gesture, posture, color of cloth, color of skin, hand implement, there's meanings. It's like a mnemonic device where there's meaning attached to every single visual thing there. Once you've learned that, the goal is you don't need to look at that tonka anymore. Right. It's in your mind and it's three-dimensional. It's not a painting mm -hmm. and it's, it's you. So mm -hmm. you're using the tonka as a mirror for a while to see yourself. Right. right. And eventually get to know yourself so well as that Buddha Mm -hmm. that you don't need the tonka anymore. You can sit on the porch, look out at the snow and be Buddha Tara <laughs> you, uh -huh. in Tennessee or in California, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so yeah, that's what the the support, they call mm -hmm. it a support, support for meditation. And any statue is the same thing too. It's a mm -hmm. support for visualization. And they do, you know, they carry blessings. Mm -hmm. um, these images carry blessings beyond just the image. There's actually ceremonies in which they're consecrated which is like an empowerment is for a person mm -hmm. a consecration is for a support for meditation so the painting mm -hmm. or the statue is consecrated by a teacher who holds that practice or who has the wisdom to be able to impart those blessings you know what that reminds me of a little bit that practice uh, of um the consecration of these things reminds me a little bit of catholic relics 
and also things that have come say from the holy land or whatever you know whether it's a vial of holy water or earth from israel that these things impart um sacredness holiness they are they are uh it's it's not just a thing it it is imbued with that spirit and that blessing yeah there's a lot that's similar in that mm -hmm. way there is a um there is a transitional version of it, which is that there isn't always the need for there to be a substance that comes from a place or an object that is venerated in and of itself because the, the teacher can generate those blessings and imbue the object with it, even if they don't have something uh, tactile or, or physical or you know some element, even if they don't have that, if they have the wisdom and the meditation Mm -hmm. then they can do that. But, but that follows the idea of a relic, like that teacher, if they have that degree of wisdom, they are a relic in a way. Mm -hmm. Once they pass away, they're considered to be a relic. They have the mm -hmm. blessing power of the relic of a great saint, you know, because really, if you want to use the terminology, that's what some of these teachers are. They're great saints. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think of them all as in, in whatever, whether it's Buddhism or Catholicism or Judaism or Hinduism, all these people are ascendant masters of various, they'd have a different cultural context, but uh -huh. they're on the same plane. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, the tradition of the ascended masters is a very interesting adaptation in the West because it assumes that someone who's really holy could not be physical on this planet. That somebody who's reached a certain point of evolution just could not even stand it here anymore. They would have to be on a higher plane somewhere working down with us, to us, for us, you know. So there's an interesting dichotomy that's assumed. Whereas in Tibet, in India, you know, in those places, it's like, well, no, if somebody is really evolved, they're going to be here <laughs> helping right. us. So the ascended masters haven't left in a way right. that's the the difference and i but i did i did i was into the whole ascended masters on my way towards buddhism mm -hmm. that whole idea seemed very attractive especially because there was a you know in the in some of the better known uh, traditions of it there's a whole map of who these masters were in many lifetimes when they were ordinary earthly beings so there's this train of this chain of incarnations of who they were and how they evolved and got farther and farther and more evolved until in one life they ascended mm -hmm. and now they work from beyond this realm to benefit beings with whom they have connection and you know mm -hmm. that so that concept well that concept is very much similar to the tulku system in tibetan buddhism these conscious reincarnations who come back again and again and you know it can seem very um complex but you know people say oh the 14th dalai lama well what does that mean that means there was a guy the first one who by the way wasn't called the first dalai lama it's kind of like the first world war wasn't called the first world war until right. there was a second world war it was you know? the war it yes. was the war to end all wars unfortunately it wasn't but on the complete opposite side of that spectrum the first dalai lama was a great master who mm -hmm. when he died and was missed um he came back and kind of said you know it's me <laughs> i'm back hi uh, <laughs> yeah, it's me again. So that was the second Dalai Lama. Um, and it, to be ultimately corrected, they weren't called the Dalai Lama until the third. So the third one was the first one called the Dalai Lama. The second reincarnation um, was called the third Dalai Lama. And Dalai is actually Mongolian for ocean-like. Mm. And at the time, there was a political arrangement between Tibet and Mongolia. And so they revered the religious leader of Tibet and the, as their own leader. And so they were like, oh, he is the ocean-like Lama, the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. um, the first one of those, uh, uh, the stories of these beings, you know, before the first Dalai Lama was the first Dalai Lama, there is a series of incarnations of who he was prior to that. Uh, and the the accomplishment he achieved and the teachers he studied under and you know there's all these wonderful stories about 
prior to becoming the Dalai Lama, his name was Drom Tumpa, and he was the student of Atisha, who brought Buddhism back to Tibet after a period of time where it had kind of faded. Uh, Atisha brought it back from India, and his student was Drom Tumpa. Well, that Drom Tumpa, in his next life, was the first Dalai Lama. So there are these stories, a lot like these ascended masters, where there's a train of, a chain of incarnations, one to the next, to the next, to the next. And in Tibetan Buddhism, they're often traced back all the way to a student of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they trace them back to a student of Guru Rinpoche who brought Buddhism to Tibet in the eighth century, but then they can trace them even farther back to one of the students of the Buddha. So, you know, the Subhuti or, or one of these students who asked questions of the Buddha end up being a great Tibetan Lama that lived in the 20th century. Because that was what I was going to ask is that, was it Padmasambhava who, br who brought uh, Buddhism to the Himalaya? Yes. Originally? Yes. As a, as a, um, he's the first one who brought it and it's stuck. So. <laughs> oh, okay. There was Others a, had tried before. That's right. There's kind of a, um, you know, a startup quality there's a king in the seventh century, Songsen Gampo, who tried to turn Tibet into a Buddhist country, kingdom. And he actually had a Nepalese Wat queen and a, a Chinese queen. And they each brought these amazingly beautiful giant Buddha statues to Lhasa, to Tibet. And they're still there. The Joo Buddha and the Ramache Buddha, they're still there in Lhasa. These Buddhas that were brought by these um, foreign queens to the Tibetan king in the seventh century. And he built stupas all around the border of Tibet and was like, this is now a Buddhist country. Well, once he was gone, the local ministers of the pre-Buddhist religion were like, okay, he's gone, back to business. And Buddhism was no longer the religion of the kingdom until the eighth century when King Trisam Dutsen was like, no, we're gonna get it right this time. So if we're gonna get it right, we got to bring somebody here who can lay down the law and teach us all about it. And we're going to build a temple. We're going to translate texts. We're going to have people become monks. It's not just going to be the king and his wives. And, um, and just the, the short version is he brought in this great scholar, Kempo Shantarakshita, who was advising him on all of this stuff. And the temple couldn't be built. Every day they would build up the temple and every night the inimical spirits of the land and maybe some of those inimical ministers uh, tore down whatever was built. And they'd come back in the morning and all their work was scattered. And so the king said to the Kempo, you're the guy, you're the one who knows everything about Buddhism. How come you can't make this work? What's wrong with you? Like, don't you know everything? And he was like, yeah, I can give you all the wisdom of the Buddha. But when it comes to something like this, overcoming spirits, that's a whole other skill set. And if you want that, you got to get Padmasambhava to come here because he's the one who has the juice. He can do that. Because before Buddhism took uh, in the Himalayan kingdoms, it was Bon. Right. Yes. That was that was the the indigenous religion of the time. And it was, I believe, kind of animist. And it, um, it had to it, it had both. It had a very strong shamanistic base. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and the and the aesthetic of when you see um, Tibetan art and Nepali art, and it has this these wild, fantastical creatures and really vivid colors and all that stuff that these are critters of bon essentially that were brought in uh to and i think of i think of how when christianity landed in certain places and they kind of took on the local things to incorporate it or, yeah. inc or incorporate the local uh the local saints to uh into the pantheon so to speak right. to make right. it to make it more uh palatable to the local population and buddhism does that beautifully and maybe that's why it maybe that's why it stuck when padmasambhava finally came along yeah, there is a lot of that there is where, wherever the the foot of the buddha lands you know there's a new shoe um so <laughs> there is definitely a strong influence the wrathful 
Buddhas have there's a strong influence of Bon in the Tibetan depiction of wrathful Buddhas. Mm -hmm. There were wrathful Buddhas in India, you know. I mean, there's wrathful goddesses. There's Kali, right. Kali, you know? yeah. And there are other um, manifestations. Usually, the feminine is the more wrathful in the Hindu and Indian Buddhist traditions. Mm -hmm. But this idea of there being wrath as compassion. Mm -hmm. had a manifestation there are images associated with it uh, that are in the hindu and indian buddhist traditions but the the level of complexity and ferocity and intensity that um, really appears in tibet uh, a lot of it is influenced by the bon there, there are some vajrakalaya yeah that's the one that's he's my favorite guy he actually it, existed in India. <laughs> what a, what an amazing, I remember when I first saw a representation of him and I thought, wow, look at that. That's, and, 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 and my understanding is that these wrathful manifestations are, they're not meant to scare you. They are there to ward off or partly anyway, to ward off uh, distraction and anything that's going to keep you from your enlightenment path and it's also a reminder like maybe like a nun with a ruler <laughs> that you better you better you know uh what is it um you know stand up straight and fly right uh -huh. or else straighten up and fly right <laughs> um so you you hit on something that's interesting because actually it's easy to the uh there there are two kinds of wrathful um, beings. One are these Yidams, these Buddhas, and then the other is the Dharma protectors. And so those are the ones who are like the reminder and the caution, the cautionary tale and all of that, the Dharma protectors, whose job it is to protect anyone who is a Dharma practitioner, to protect the teachings, the students and the teachers. So the Dharma protectors also can either be worldly or wisdom. So the wisdom protectors are basically a kind of Buddha, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a very wrathful Buddha. The worldly protectors are often uh, adopted from local religions. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, you have Lord Shiva. He's the, the Lord of all of the Indian Hindu world. Well, he's one of our protectors. We're going <laughs> to we're going to take him on as one of our worldly protectors. So there's this kind of division of labor in a way. Um, worldly protectors and worldly deities will help you with worldly ends. Wisdom protectors and wisdom deities are there to help you with liberation and enlightenment through countless lives, not worldly uh, attainments. So, I'm just going to close the door really quick. Sure. Okay. So yeah, the the uh, there is enough correspondence between. Um, what Buddhism took on when it came to Tibet and some of what existed in the Bun that you can say, oh, well, that they got from the Bun or mm -hmm. this, they, this they brought, that they got, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and there is a lot of kind of, I don't know, there's a lot of fable, legend, lore around who the Bun were and what they practiced, which is why I said it's rooted in shamanism, definitely. There are teachings in Bun that are that shamanistic level. There are teachings in Bun that are the highest teachings, Dzogchen. And interestingly, the only Tibetan Buddhist tradition that has Dzogchen is that first school or lineage that started when Padmasambhava brought Buddhism to Tibet. So this Dzogchen, great perfection, exists in two traditions, the Bun and the oldest school of Tibetan Buddhism, the Nyingma. Mm -hmm. So whether or not that was adopted or, you know, embedded or whatever it was, there, there is that shared as well. Right. And the, the Dalai Lama, is it the Nyingma is his, is his branch? No, his is actually the, the newest. And by oh. newest, we mean 15th century. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> just yesterday. Just, yeah, it's just, just, you know. 1400s, no big deal. Right. So the the oldest, the Nyingma, that's the first that's really guided by the blessings, teachings and transmissions coming from Padmasambhava. Mm -hmm. And okay. so Padmasambhava, when he showed up, 
he overwhelmed all of those negative forces. And not only that, but those spirits then started to help build the monastery. So when they left it at night, they come back in the morning and it would be more built. So it's called mm -hmm. Samye, which means like uh, self-arising. Um, so this temple was built. Uh, then the texts were translated. Sometimes the old school is called the early translation school. And then novitiates, monks were, were um, ordained. And so then it stuck because there were those three levels of transmission. So the Nyingma is based in that transmission in the eighth century. Okay. Then there was a royal family called the Sakya and they carry to this day, it's a, it's a dynastic, a familial line. Um, and to this day, they carry some practices that come from Padmasambhava back then because they were mm. around then. Wow. They have other practices that they've taken over the t over time from India mm -hmm. directly. Um, and so they're they're kind of a unique uh, lineage in that they have roots in both the Tibetan Nyingma tradition and in uh, Hindu uh, Indian Buddhist tradition. Mm -hmm. And so they trace their roots to one of the great Mahasiddhas of India. So there's a very, uh, the Vajrayana Buddhists of India before it went to Tibet. There are these great accomplished masters and they trace their lineage back to Virupa, who's one of those Mahasiddhas. And my understanding also is that, um, so in the monastic tradition that there, there weren't uh, nuns until much later, is that right? That's yes, that that goes back to the time of the Buddha, though, there were nuns still in the time of Buddha. Okay, but they were they were not. Um, it was kind of, it was like a consolation prize. You know, it was not it was not seen as this is really going to get you to enlightenment. It's seen as well, do this and pray to be reborn a man. Yes, and you're then, only a woman after all. Right. Yes, that and, was and, the if, attitude. and if you pray to be reborn a man, then you have a shot. Um, so that was right. It, during the time of the Buddha, there were nuns, but it was not a, uh, a highly regarded position, unfortunately. But um, I think in but, recent years, I think much more so, and actually the Dalai Lama did say that he thought that he might, he might reincarnate as a woman. And that yeah. was a rather revolutionary thing for him to say. Well, you know, that's particularly true because so the, there's the Nyingma, there's the Sakya, there's the Kagyu, which is a kind of an oral tradition. Ka means oral and Gyu means lineage. And they trace themselves back to the <clears throat> Milarepa, who is mm -hmm. the great kind of Tibetan singing saint mm -hmm. renunciate. Mahasiddha, uh, yes. That's right. And, uh, and so that was the third lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. The fourth, which is started by Tsongkhapa, is the Dalai Lama's tradition. And it is completely monastic. So these first three, you can either be a monk or you can be what's called a householder. Mm -hmm. um, and a householder has a family, has a life, is not monastic, is not retreated, you know, has, has different vows that they hold. But when it came to the 15th century and Tsongkhapa, he was like, you know what? It's too, too messy, too complicated. People can be having the wrong view and doing stuff that they're saying leads to enlightenment. And really it's just ordinary mind and ordinary desire and ordinary whatever. So I'm going to be a monk and prove that you can reach enlightenment as a monk. And so that was the beginning of the Dalai Lama sect. So for the Dalai Lama to say that he might be reborn as a woman is very much uh, counter to what the Galupa, his lineage, uh, holds, which is that the Dalai, sure, you can have wonderful, there are nuns in the Galupa, of course, mm -hmm. but for the Dalai Lama to be mm. woman and, yeah. and potentially not a monk or a nun, I mean, he's, he's made many uh, radical claims about what he might come back as, whom mm -hmm. he might come back as. And I think he's kind of messing with the Chinese's, the Chinese head a little bit, yes. but well, and they've already, they've already, they always claim that they are picking their own. And of course, it's not legit. Of course, it's a political uh, ploy. Right. But um, one of the things that's interesting about the householder tradition is that householders have unique challenges because they are, they are living in the world. Right. They are not tucked away on a mountaintop somewhere where there are no distractions. 
they have probably children Often, and and, yes. a, and a spouse and pets and and th- a job and things that they have to do and Even it's a that. little bit like <laughs> i think i think about i sort of equate it with working from home whereas working <laughs> from home is can be a great idea and yes you can be very efficient with your time but you can also be distracted by whatever is around you you know that's and people but yeah pets and people exactly so um so the householder path in a certain way is 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 not easier maybe it's a little bit more challenging in a sense because your life yeah. is not as structured and structured as it is if you're in a monastic situation it has it's very much has its unique challenges and um and you know to the credit of the traditions that honor that uh, householder uh, idea that's incorporated in the teachings is like this is actually going to be more challenging than just leaving you know going off into retreat or into a monastery or into a cave or wherever mm-hmm. the challenge is um, to be able to integrate and integration is not uh, a simple task because even the people who go into retreat mm-hmm. you know go off into the cave um, eventually if you believe in reincarnation, they're going to be back in the world with worldly people. So at some point, hopefully they don't go through their whole life and and avoid that reintegration into society. At some point, they want to be able to reintegrate, to connect back with uh, uh, common culture, you know, everyday people and be there for them and help them, help liberate them, not just talk about it. I think it's an interesting, I think of, um, uh, different, different, uh, different version of Buddhism, but Leonard Cohn, of course, famously went off to, uh, the Zen monastery on Mount Baldy and was there for for seven years, seven years. And, uh, I find it so interesting because he, he's a person who has done both as, as a monk and as a householder. Right out in the world, and what that and must he be came like. Back. Yes, yeah, he and did. he 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 came back out and did some of his finest work. Um, you know, the circumstances uh, <laughs> surrounding that are a little cautionary tale because yes. one of the main reasons he came out is because his money was mismanaged in his yes. absence, and so he had to come out and and earn a living again. Yeah. which he wouldn't have had to do. He had to earn a living to be able to support himself in his practice, which was really his goal, was he wanted to continue his practice. Um, and so he came out and his unique view of the beauty and suffering of the world came through more so than ever in the work that he did after his long retreat, because seven years is yeah. pretty long. Yeah, <laughs> I would say. And then, and then to have in his later years a resurgence of his career and that yeah, last tour I mean, that he did unbelievable unbelievable that his it's just so he's so inspiring because he can be those extreme poles of you know inversion and extroversion um and you could kind of always see that he had both in him mm-hmm. uh you know even when before he was a buddhist there was this sense of a deep inner wisdom that was not necessarily um, compromised by the world that the rest of us are compromised by. Um, But yeah, this ability to go into retreat, come out of retreat and create. And yeah, of course there's a resurgence because that voice and the amount of people that he influenced. And I mean, the song Hallelujah never stopped the whole time he was in retreat. Other people were carrying that as a, a song, a holy song. I mean, a hallelujah yeah. means it's holy, but holy in that it is a transformative song in and of itself. It is a powerful, yeah. uh, you know, some people are like, oh, no one can do that song right um, until then Jeff Buckley did it. Yes. And then everybody's like, well, nobody can do it better than Jeff Buckley. Well, you know, Katie Lang did a pretty good version yes. of it. And so in my mind, Rufus it's almost Wainwright. like a, Rufus Wainwright. It's almost a rite of passage. If you're a great singer, you should do Hallelujah to join that canon of mm. how people do, how people interpret such an extraordinary uh, work of art 
you know, it's a, it's a real honor, I think, for a singer to be able to do a version of Hallelujah and have it rate in any way, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So that I think is an amazing thing, a, a creation like that, that I also love the story that he never finished writing it. He kept writing verses. Allegedly, there are a hundred verses or more that Leonard yes. Cohen has written. We just get like a dozen that are in the recorded versions of it. Um, but but yeah, this idea that there is this thing that he created, channeled, whatever you want to call it, this thing mm -hmm. that came through him that is a rite of passage, that is in and of itself a kind of initiation, you know, you become and when, a Leonard and when, Cohen Buddha. Yes, and when he did that that version on the um the uh the the show the 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 concert that he recorded at the O2 Arena in London, and he's got Sharon Robinson and Charlie and Hattie Webb doing background for oh. uh background vocals for that and and that was the last version that that he recorded right and that to me is the is the pinnacle. ultimate the pinnacle yeah. of hallelujah and again leonard Cohn raised jewish yeah somebody <laughs> was very deeply deeply connected with his faith and practice and and buddhism expanded on it Yes. And, and in a lot of ways, there is the, that thing that we talked about, that, that baseline of inquiry, that the baseline in Judaism isn't uh, uh, obedience, it's inquiry. Mm -hmm. um, there sure is obedience in there, but there's yes. inquiry. We're meant to question, to wrestle with God, all of those things that we talked about. And I, and I think for someone like a Leonard Cohn, you heard inquiry so much in his work before he became a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like he changed. That didn't change. Mm -hmm. um, that wasn't something where he's like, I'm now a Buddhist. And so I'm doing something different. No, it was, I'm now a Buddhist Jew who has a different kind of inquiry. Yeah, yeah. And then there's this idea of, um, what was it? I was going to make a point about Judaism and Buddhism. Oh, it's flown out of my head. Um, but inquiry and also this, the thing about compassionate action and uh -huh. about social justice and a doing good in the world. There's Making the, the drives, better. Yes. And that drives, that drives Judaism and it also drives buddhism and they so they're akin in that particular way well that's that bodhisattva vow which says i'm just going to keep coming back to make the world better you know even yeah. if, even if i can't can't attain the uh, liberation of all beings from suffering what i can do is keep trying yeah and in trying i'm trying to make the world a better place and that's the you know in judaism there's tikkun olam which is to make the universe better to give to the universe not to just take um, yeah and so yeah there's the bodhisattva vow and tikkun olam have a lot in common actually mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's also a um i forget the name of it but i have a friend who teaches a meditation practice that is that is jewish specifically and i forget uh -huh. the name of it but there is similar there are similarities in that as well yeah I mean, there's there is so much correspondence. We the subject that we kind of just broached in the last talk about how the meditation on the tree of life, the Kabbalah, mm -hmm. has so many correspondences to Buddhism. There's, it's almost one of those things where you say, did these things meet, or are they both deriving from the ultimate truth that you know, truth is truth kind of thing? Right. I wonder because you wonder if it maybe did they evolve separately but from the same source or did somehow they cross paths at some it's, point it's very possible i mean if you're looking at time frames and parts mm -hmm. of the world you know that kind of um that uh propagation could happen those spice roots and you know different roots of trade and commerce that go back thousands of years there certainly yeah. were there are hebrew texts that were found in the dunhuang caves in china that yes. date back to the eighth century so so if hebrew texts were there in the eighth century you know there could have been transmission of many things um yes and that's just that's not to say 
the the Kabbalah was first, but it is to say that we don't know when the Kabbalah happened and we do know when the Buddha appeared. But the Buddha was espousing universal truths too. It wasn't like they started with a guy in the fifth right. century BC. And also, I think of um, there were stories that Jesus was in Rajasthan. At some I love point. those stories. Yeah, yeah, and those. that he. Was I don't learning know how much we can. Yes, there's just it's uh, the lost years stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard people debunk at base value the possibility that that could even be true and then i've heard other people who insist there's all this evidence that it is and you know the servants sermon on the mount and the teachings of the buddha there's so much correspondence there's also something else that's very curious is that the origin story of jesus is exactly the same as krishna Mm, as mithras yep the ancient persian religion oh, um, and then somebody else too osiris osiris yes yep. born of born of virgin um and then and, and then it's killed in his 33rd year or somewhere around there and and, and then it, you comes think, back. wait a second and comes back <laughs> and teaches you think wait a second wait 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 and it doesn't mean that these people didn't exist it just means that they're there is some kind of thread that is tying all of these faith traditions together and that they are all based on some universal truth. At least that's my my, yeah. my belief. Yeah, I, I sometimes think of it as an underlying uh, coherent principle mm-hmm. that there is this uh, natural principle that is the, uh, the, the way in which enlightened mind manifests has a certain basic geometry structure to it that whenever it appears fully in this plane, whenever it is, um, when it outpictures, when it flows into the physical plane, that there is going to be this inherent structure or principle, organizing principle. I think also, yes, I think also of um, just as an example of that, the Fibonacci sequence. Right. Uh, that shows up in everything, whether it's the double strand of the DNA helix, whether it's a nautilus shell, whether it's the, the, the spiral galaxies, it's on the macro and on the micro and every single thing has this particular, uh, particular proportion that every it is it is as though we instinctively recognize it and find it good right now pleasing proportions the the ratios etc yep the golden mean i mean i think the most important thing about that is to recognize that you know nobody invented it it isn't something that's invented by man it's Mm -hmm. a structure that can be seen and found in everything and called a Fibonacci sequence because somebody figured out how to mathematically describe it, mm-hmm. but some it's, Italian guy, yeah, that guy. Um, but it's something that exists—an underlying truth that exists in the, in the creation of the physical universe. And so I do think that that's the same thing with spiritual traditions: that there are these underlying, not created by human being, underlying truths that when people get to a point of clarity, that is beyond ordinary mind this is what emerges you know this is what's there there's a wonderful book um and i'm sure that you know about it it's called the book of joy and it is that collaboration we may have talked about this last time the collaboration between the dalai lama and archbishop desmond tutu these wonderful old friends (laughs) who get together and have conversations about uh about uh things that come up in life and how does one manage Mm -hmm. in crisis or looking around the world and seeing these conflicts and is there any hope for these things and what a what an amazing collaboration it was because here we have um archbishop tutu who is a christian an anglican bishop Mm -hmm. he has his perspective and of course, the Dalai Lama has his Buddhist perspective. What what about, um, because of course, in Christianity, as in Judaism, you have, um, and in Islam as well, you have, you have, they're, they're monotheistic traditions. Right. And with Buddhism, there isn't a, 
God, so to speak, but there is an underlying principle, a divine principle, would you say? Yeah, there's a awakenness. So I don't, I, you know, using the word divine is useful because it makes it makes it clear that th th this is super mundane. This is beyond ordinary worldly stuff. Um, <clears throat> and we call some of these, you know, the the things that we visualize, we call them deities. So mm -hmm. it is like a divine thing. But the idea that there is a creator is, uh, to use a Christian term, anathema to Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, because ultimately, anything that has an appearance, a shape, um, something that can be described, features or characteristics, all of that is relative and ultimate is beyond that. And so there is, you know, this, it's very similar in, in Islam and in Judaism, there are no depictions of God because it's God is beyond description, right? Right. And in, in, um, in Judaism, even the name of God is unpronounceable, you know, on a relative level, you might say unpronounceable, but on a more, more, on a deeper level, unutterable, because it is not a name, right? That, so that exists in those traditions, but still there is this sense of there is a God, mm -hmm. one God, creator of the universe. In Buddhism, there is not. Right. There is awakened Buddha nature. So awareness itself, self-knowing, timeless awareness, that is the, the core. Self-knowing, timeless awareness is, you know, what we call Buddha na nature is in people like us, anybody who lives a life, we have Buddha nature because it has not been realized yet. Mm -hmm. But the Buddha nature that we have is that diamond covered in mud. That diamond is the self-knowing, timeless awareness that is what corresponds to God. Uh, and that's why, you know, in religions where they say God is in your heart. Well, in Buddhism, self-knowing, timeless awareness is in your heart. Mm -hmm. But when you get there, it isn't a being. Right. It is the, when, when the lotus comes up through the mud, through the muck. <laughs> awareness transcends the 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 stuff the corporal stuff that's around yeah it's fascinating but also interesting that there are values that in buddhism that are shared by the monotheistic faiths as well oh yeah but there are There's certain the... values of of Absolutely. right action or right thought right word right deed um a righteous path um not doing harm, treating others as you yourself would be treated, that golden rule that yep. comes to us over and over again that most people don't listen to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I also, uh, one of the things that has always fascinated me, and I touched on it last time, is the mystical traditions uh, of, all, of all different faiths and practices. If you put, If you put these people in a room, you put a Sufi, and a and a Vajrayana Buddhist and a Christian mystic and a um, a, 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 a a sadhu mm -hmm. <laughs> or any any number of people who are the who are the, the great mystics and meditators of all of these different traditions put them in a room together they'd all be sitting there having a great time with big smiles on their faces because they're all talking about the same thing or not talking but yeah or it's not the same talking. thing. <laughs> Sharing a I, I, meal together, possibly that might be what's happening. I, no, it's actually a favorite thing of mine to try to imagine, like what what's that room like, right? Mm. When you have mystics from every tradition, or even if you just have like you know realized beings from one tradition all in the room together, where they have gone beyond concept, thought, word. What do they talk about? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so maybe they just smile and enjoy the meal and have a laugh and, you know, nothing needs to be said. Or, or as one person told me, the, she was witness to these two great Tibetan masters coming together and they, they brought lunch to them and the translator was in the room with them and then everybody left them alone. It's these two Tibetans and the translator was with them because he had been with them for you know the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. they, they heard all of this laughter coming out of the room. And they, when the translator came out, they were like, what are they talking about? What are they laughing about? And he was like, oh, you know how it is. Remember this life when we did this? Remember that life when we did that? <laughs> Everything so, and nothing. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> 
a different kind of nostalgia and reminiscence, I guess. <laughs> and you had um, you you yourself, you know, before we were talking about the householder life as well as the renunciate life. You you've had both of those things too, and 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 that's a, I know that's a whole another whole another story. But you had two years, two two years was it that you were a renunciate essentially? Well, I, I would um, caution on that. We, what, we, we were a householder tradition, even mm -hmm. in that retreat center. Okay. So we weren't renunciates. Okay. But, but you, you weren't talking. It, well, there was a couple of retreats where I wasn't talking. Yeah. But if you if you look at it, somebody um, when I moved there, someone asked me, "Is Chagdu Gompa Rigzudling?" It's a retreat center in Northern California, almost at the Oregon border. And somebody asked me who lived there once I moved. He said, "What's the biggest difference between living here and living in New York City?" And I said, well, aside from everything, um, in New York City, if you're in Midtown at lunchtime and you're on like a slightly raised block street corner, you can look down a few blocks and see thousands of heads bobbing. People walking at lunchtime just on a few blocks, you can see thousands of heads bobbing. And in this place, Chagdugampa, there are 35 people who live here. And in a year, with all the events that we have, you know, people come to these big events, you might, you might meet 500 people, you know, mm -hmm. that's the biggest difference is the amount of contact. So in a way that is renunciation, even though it's not um, a complete monkhood in any way, mm -hmm. it is renunciation. And within the two years that I was there, as you were pointing out, there are periods of time when you do go into full on uh, retreat mode, renunciation mode, you are by yourself, you remain in silence, mm -hmm. you have no contact with other people or as little contact as possible, and you don't even use your texts or your visualization practices that you've received empowerment into, you, you retreat from all of that. Mm -hmm. And you remain in a state of uh, daily practice of meditating on that self-knowing timeless awareness I was talking about, which has no features, no characteristics, and so it is this deep end of the practice pool. Mm -hmm. it's, you, it's you and the sky and your mind, and that's mm -hmm. it. What, so, what yeah. for, for you, for your personal experience in this, what, what was the, the hardest thing and the easiest thing and the most unexpected thing about that kind of deep extended practice? What? I'm trying to remember if there was an easiest thing. <laughs> well, I guess if you're speaking relatively, the easiest thing is you don't, um, you don't have to, in silence, you don't have to speak. You're not supposed to speak, but you also don't have to speak. And so it's both the hardest and the easiest. Mm. It's the hardest because I can't shut up, but it's the easiest in that you don't have to engage in this kind of uh, negotiation of mind space with other people. It's all your own mind space, which is plenty, trust me. So, you know, the, the hardest thing is to not speak, but the easiest thing is to go without speaking. Um, mm -hmm. So there is something about that that's beautiful. Also, the easiest thing is that when you do a retreat like that, the rule is that you do nothing, you know? So that's easy in a way even though it's harder than one would imagine, it's easy in that you don't have a set of prescribed activities other than get up in the morning and go meditate and meditate until you go to sleep at night. <laughs> like that's the rule. Your marching Everything orders. Else, that's it. <clears throat> don't do anything. Do the absence of anything, you know. Do non-doing. Um, other than that, like all of the, oh, well, it's six o'clock, I have to do this practice, or it's, you know, I have to do this thing, I have to do that, all of the activities of um, a practitioner, you know, it, that is a lot of busyness, that when you're doing a retreat like this, that is gone. The hardest thing sometimes, again, like silence, is to do nothing, but it's also, uh, there is a welcome, a welcoming womb of silence and inactivity that is really powerful and so the most unexpected thing i think <clears throat> the most unexpected thing would be what your mind is like when you're left alone with it 
um, I think that even for someone who was on a, you know, been on a spiritual path for decades by the time I moved there and been meditator since I was 15, even with all of that time spent, um, I was not prepared for what happens when you really, when you, you know, you cut the ribbon and let the balloon fly, um, not prepared for what that would look like. And, you know, the, there's an old adage, which is, uh, a breakdown and a breakthrough both have a break. Whether you come back from that break more or less capable of dealing with your mind and others, that's the proof in the pudding of what kind of break it was. But both of them, you have a break. And that break is a break from ordinary thinking. A breakthrough and or a breakdown is all in how you look at it. That's right. And it's how it turns out. It's, they can look the same at the time when they're happening. Because you do, if you go into silent retreat at some point, whether you're in for six weeks um, and it happens then, or it doesn't happen until you're in for three years, at some point, there's going to be a break. Uh, and it's going to be, it's going to look like you've gone crazy, either to yourself or to others who see you, because the break is from ordinary thought, ordinary mm -hmm. thinking. Um, and so <clears throat> I can't say that I had the kind of profound deep break that I think one needs to be able to really progress. But I definitely went crazy. And I had a break in the six weeks, first six weeks silent retreat that I did. Um, I did two while I was there. So and it's no big whoop, like people hear that and they think it's a big deal. I'm like, you don't understand. There's one of my teachers who did 30 years of retreat, not six weeks in silence, mm -hmm. 30 years that break happened early on for them and they just kept going you know like they definitely became more capable of benefiting beings mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you know some of them wandered through the woods and mountains one of them stayed in a cave for decades um, these are some of the teachers of my teachers but also some of the teachers that i met and spent time with had that in their uh, you know the, <laughs> under their belt in their experience uh, i think of one teacher lama wangdor who was in retreat in a cave in Tibet. And when the Chinese armies invaded, um, his first concern was his teacher at the monastery. And he went from the cave down to the monastery and picked up his little old teacher and put him on his back and walked over the Himalaya Pass into India with his teacher into Sopema, which is uh, Nepal. He walked his teacher over the mountain got down to this monastery in Sopema, this lake, the Lotus Lake, dropped his teacher off there and said, you know, where's a good cave? And went back into a cave for another couple of decades. So he's, he was really, had a great sense of humor. Something and it goes, to, it goes to show how precious these teachers are. And in fact, Rinpoche means precious. Isn't That's that right. right? That's right. Yeah. Jewel-like, yes. Rinpoche is a, an honorific, not a... Um, last name. It's right. very funny when you say, oh, my teacher was Chagdu Tulku Rinpoche. And people who don't know Tibetan Buddhism are like, oh, Rinpoche, I know Rinpoche. There's so many of them. <laughs> yeah. It's like saying Father Frank, you know, oh, I know Father, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Rinpoche. And I've, I've really had the great good fortune to have been able to spend time around a number of these guys who were, you know, did their training while they were in Tibet before the Chinese invasion who were able to be guided by <clears throat> great masters there, some of whom emerged and remained their teachers in exile. So the, the lineage of Buddhism, as it came from India into Tibet, left Tibet and came <clears throat> back into India. <clears throat> India, Excuse yes. Me. Yes, that's and right. And the Dalai India, Lama. Yep, through India, then over here. And Dharmasala, and yep. now over here. And it lives on. Well, and you it, know, David, I think this is a good spot to to leave it Great. and uh, maybe we'll come back and and do more but i think this is a this is a wonderful uh wonderful full, full circle episode here yeah not what i thought we were gonna do but that's great that's the way it, that's the way it is yeah <laughs> thank you so much for your time today i really appreciate it thanks dana i always love your questions
it's great to kind of pop the cork on my mind and get me. <laughs> Thank you. So there you go. That was part duh of my talk with David Scharf. And we will have him on again at some point in future to continue the conversation. Next time, the plan is to have on the 50th installment of Conversations from Here, my husband, Brad Watson. Many people have been asking, why are you not talking to Brad? And I said, uh, that's a very good question. Given his experience and his talent as a musician, as many of you know. And uh, so that's what we're going to do to celebrate 50 episodes of the show is speak with my darling love, Bradley James Watson. So I hope you enjoyed this episode today. And next time you're in for a real treat. Also, take good care of yourselves. Take good care of each other. And as always, I will see you on the other side. Thank you so much for listening.